morning, everyone. Take your Bibles, please, and go to that passage in Colossians 4, uh, verses 16 to 18. I want to welcome our friends down in the Columbus campus and uh, those also in the overflow room this morning. Glad you're all here. And uh, as we take a look at this last uh, three verses, 16, 17, and 18, we're wrapping up our uh, study on the book of Colossians today. As you're turning there, you'll also find in your bulletin a uh, prayer card. Uh, looks like this. This is uh, something we received permission from uh, Pray Magazine to uh, reproduce, and it gives you uh, things that you can pray about through the various passages in the book of Colossians. And hopefully you'll take this, put this in your Bible as just kind of a way to remind you of some of the things that God taught us and how we can pray um, even in weeks and months and years to come about the lessons that God uh, showed us in this text. With that, please, would you join me as we ask the Lord to help us? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the countless ways in which you've met us in this book. And we want today for you to speak to us one last time from the pages of the book of Colossians. Lord, I thank you for um, a book of the Bible that my Bible literally opens to when I open the Scriptures. Thank you for um, weeks of careful inquiry into the meaning of this passage and also the ways in which you have poured out your Spirit among us and taught us things that have changed our lives. I thank you for people who've literally become your children through our time in this book. I thank you for marriages that understand in a fresh and new way what it means to make Christ the center. And I also thank you for the compelling vision of what it means for you, Jesus, to be the core. And we pray now that as we end this series that you would emblaze upon our hearts the vital lessons that we have learned, the things that you've taught us, that we would always be people who are different because of our time in this text. So, Lord, we ask for your help and ask you, Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds to what it is that you want to say to us this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we bring to closure um, our series in the book of Colossians called The Core. And um, you may not know it, but I'm kind of a sentimental guy. And so when I come to the end of a sermon series, I kind of have this sentimental thing that, that's, that's happening. In fact, on, on Christmas morning, for instance, I, I have to have a cup of coffee and, and sit and have our kids just kind of all be on the ground as they're beginning to open up their presents because I love just the sentimental value of that, that mental image in my mind of, of this Christmas morning And I was thinking that I wasn't going to be able to have any sentimental feelings this Christmas because I was convinced that you just don't have snow in Indiana at all. And uh, last night when I was coming back from the church, I'm hearing Christmas carols and there's green grass and I mowed my grass yesterday and I thought, this just doesn't fit. And uh, so this morning I'm feeling much more sentimental. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, so at least for the next two days. So... I'm a sentimental guy, and so when I conclude a book like this, I kind of want to think back on the things that God has taught us, the things, the lessons that He has helped us to understand, and um, it's been a great study. Uh, The pages of my Bible have um, sweat marks on them from uh, intense moments of trying to figure out what does this say and how do I say it. This letter has included some great things about who Jesus is, 
about our position in Christ and also about how to apply it in the real world. And that's what's so great about the book of Colossians, is it takes the preeminence of Jesus, the beauty of who he is, the full authority of Christ as portrayed in this book, and it makes it practical in how you live at home and in marriage and at work. We've uh, run the gamut of all sorts of um, understandings about who Jesus is and also illustrations to try and make that clear. Everything from uh, duct tape, remember that, and uh, hot sauce, to Oprah and laminin. Okay? We've gone all the way from pictures of Jeremiah water skiing, where I pleaded with you, don't let go of the gospel, but let go of the rope when you're water skiing, to what it means for a husband and wife to work through an argument about a backsplash in the kitchen, which, by the way, is completed to the glory of God. So thank you. <laughs> So, so this book, it will always be special to me. I, I remember the first series that I preached at Calvary, and I will always remember this one. God specifically led me to choose this book and this series while driving back from the congregational vote in February, and it was a gift, I think, from the Lord. Just do this, and it was just perfect. When I introduced this series, I, I gave you a few reasons why I had chosen the book of Colossians, and let me give them to you again. There were four. First, is that it contains some of the most glorious passages about Christ in all of the Bible. Colossians nails it about who Jesus is. Uh, Paul looks at Jesus like a diamond from various angles, and the more Paul looks at him, the language he uses, the more in which he, 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 he helps us to see who Jesus is, the more glorious Christ becomes. And so my hope and prayer is that at the end of this series, 26 messages that you could say at the end, I love Jesus more because of Colossians. Not just I got more stuff in my head, but that your heart has been enlarged for who Jesus is and what he means to you. The second thing is that it fits perfectly with College Park's historical principle to keep the main one the main thing. It is that from the founding of this church, Jesus has been the central reality of what has made College Park unique. So it's been good to remind ourselves that that's what This church, and really all churches, and the scriptures are all about. Third, it applies the centrality of Jesus to marriage, home, and work. The beautiful thing about the preeminence of Christ is it's incredibly practical. And the beautiful thing is the more you understand about Jesus and the more you make it work in your lives, the bigger Jesus becomes in your mind and the more applications that come in your marriage and home and life. It means that understanding that Christ is the core is just a beginning of a journey, not a destination. And finally, it's important because living Jesus-centered is a primary battleground. I think if we're honest, in 21st century America, there's a lot of leeches that get attached to our hearts. A lot of things that draw resource and, and, and energy and spiritual vitality from us. Not to mention our own hearts, which, by the way, I know that my problem, Mark Vogup's problem, is Mark Vogup. That's my problem. My problem is that I want to be the center of the universe And I want everything and everyone to orbit around me and Jesus' authority and his lordship and his supremacy run right into contrast and in conflict with my desire to be the center of the universe. And so for the preeminence of Christ, the lordship of Jesus is a primary battleground for all of us. And that's why this book, I think, has been so helpful. And I trust that your life, like mine, will have been impacted by this book. 
And in this final message, I want to ask us one question. In this remaining text, Paul talks about what it means to fulfill one's ministry. And the question I would have for us is this. What does it mean for College Park Church at the end of 2008, completing a series on Colossians, moving into 2009, what does it look like for us to fulfill our ministry? In light of all of what God has done in our midst through this book, in light of the things that he's taught us through this wonderful, glorious summary of who Jesus is, what are the things that God wants us to do to to fulfill the entrustment of grace that he's given to us? Because I don't want you to take for granted a minute those moments when God, by his grace, illumined a passage, you understood it, you got it, your heart leapt with the beauty of who Jesus is, and that you would never forget the lessons that God taught you through this book. So this morning what I want to do is two things. One, look at these remaining verses, final words, and figure out what it is that Paul is saying here and why is it significant. And the last thing is is to answer that question, what does it mean for College Park Church to fulfill her ministry in light of what God has taught us through this book? And I'm going to give you seven lessons that I don't want you to ever forget that came out of the study of this book. I just sat down and thought, okay, so what were the seven defining moments in this book? And maybe there are seven different ones for you, but these are the seven ones that I think defined the, the study of Colossians. So first, final words. Paul does not end this book with a bang or a big crescendo. He doesn't end it with the kind of grand finale fireworks like we saw at our missions conference. He ends it instead with a personal and heartfelt tone. He ends with words from a pastor who loves his people, a pastor who wants to see his people continue to grow. We get in these verses, verses 16, 17, and 18, a sense of the personal nature of what it meant for Paul to be an apostle. And we get a sense of the reality of his heart and what he longed for in this church. We see that for Paul, the idea of the supremacy of Christ and the lordship of Jesus and the awe of who he is, is not just about doctrine, not just about position, not just about theology or these ideas about who Jesus is. No, for Paul, who Christ is, is deeply, deeply personal. Christology, beloved, the study of Christ, is not just an academic pursuit. It is a personal matter. It is a matter that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It means that the more I know about Him, the more I understand Him, the more I I comprehend the beauty of all that He is, the more my heart is drawn to Him. Be warned if the study of Jesus creates less heart and be thrilled when your heart is expanded in love for Christ. My, My hope and my prayer from this series is that you've left at times with a heart just so full of Jesus, so full of an understanding of who He is, that your love and affections for Christ have risen to new heights. Because my aim is not just to aim for your head. No, I aim for your head to get to your heart. That's where. The battle is for affections, the desires, the things that we love. And my hope is that you will see in these remaining passages Paul's burden for an expanded heart for Christ as he personally speaks to this church. Verse 16 is the first one. He speaks directly to the church, to the church at Colossae, and says to them, share the truth of this letter with the church at Laodicea. 
and, and take the letter from Laodicea and have it read also at Colossae. Now, you've got to understand that there was no collection of scriptures at that time. Instead, when a, when a, a church would gather, they would receive a, some instruction from Paul. The letter would come and they would gather together and the letter would be read out loud. And that's how the, the information regarding doctrine and who God was and is and who Jesus is and instructions for the church, that's how that word was disseminated amongst God's people. And so what Paul says here in verse 16 is that they are to take the letter. Verse 16 says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now Laodicea was about 10 miles west of the city of Colossae. And um, Paul wanted this letter written to the Colossian church to be read there. We know a little bit about the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 tells us some things. Take your Bibles, will you, and turn over there. The church at Laodicea is often called the lukewarm church. And it is a place where we find some, some interesting things about this church and even the infamous passage about Jesus standing outside of the door of the church and knocking, trying to get back in. Here's what he says about this church, Revelation 3. It's a fairly familiar passage, but I want to remind you what was going on at this church and think with me just for a moment creatively about the application of the themes of Colossians to the church at Laodicea. There's there's stunning parallels here. Verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, sidebar, and I've explained this before, but you may have not been here. In Laodicea, there were two kinds of springs, one hot, one cold. Jesus is not saying here, I wish you were either hot, meaning on fire for me, or I wish you were cold, meaning having rejected me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there's hot springs and cold springs. Both were useful. For instance, in the summertime, um, it's very helpful to have a cold drink, right? When we were in India, it was like 95 degrees in the seminary classroom, and it was time for tea. And the last thing in the world I wanted was a hot beverage. And they brought out this chai tea, and it was steaming. And just being around it made me sweat more, right? What I wanted was an ice-cold Diet Coke. That's what I wanted, right? So a cold drink in the warm summer day is very useful. At the same time, a hot drink in a cold day is very nice. When I woke up this morning, one of the first things I wanted was my cup of coffee. Nice, warm. So warm and cold, it's useful. And what Paul is chiding, or what Jesus rather is chiding this church for, is their lack of usefulness. Because there's nothing useful about lukewarm beverages in the summer or the winter. And that's why he says, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm... I will spew you out of my mouth. And then verse 17. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, I have needed nothing. And not realizing you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were self-deceived. They thought they had everything and they really had nothing. They thought they had all sorts of wealth and they were really poor. They thought they had clothes on but they were really naked. It's like the biblical story of a church like the emperor has no clothes. And Jesus calls them on it. I counsel you to buy me gold, verse 18, refined by fire, so you may be rich, white garments, so you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and to salve, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous and repent. And then verse 20, the stunning verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The idea is that Jesus has, is outside of the church ministry. He's been locked outside the church. And the text then says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, eat with him, and he with me. So the church at Laodicea was guilty of uselessness, 
pride and its exclusion from Christ in the midst of their church. Aren't you glad we don't have any of those problems today? Aren't you glad that we don't struggle with spiritual pride, thinking that we got it all together? Aren't you glad that we don't struggle with having a church in Jesus' name, but we lock Him outside of the four walls of the church? The reason why this book resonates with us is because we know that Christ is supposed to be in the middle of the assembly, and oftentimes we have to fight to get Him back in there. We know that Christ is supposed to be central in our heart, but our spiritual pride, our thinking that we've got it all together, our spiritual resourcefulness, or even our wealth, creates a level of dependence on things other than Jesus. And that is why when you are stripped bare, it's then you learn the beauty of the sufficiency of Christ. But there's something else worth noting in verse 16. It says, And have... It also read in the church of Laodicea, see that you read the letter from Laodicea. Now, you ever have those moments when you read a passage of Scripture and suddenly something comes up in the passage and you don't know what to do with it and you kind of go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. This would be one of those passages. I remember in, um, I think it was high school or college, when I came to understand that there were other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote that weren't a part of the canon of Scripture or the Bible that I have. And that kind of freaked me out for a moment. It's like, well, what do you you, you mean that there's other letters? And, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about another letter that he wrote. And so we see here that Paul wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea. And for those of you who have never had that thought or thought of that before, I just want to help you understand what that means. It means that the Apostle Paul wrote lots of things, but not everything he wrote was inspired. It's not as though Paul had a corner on the market of inspiration words, but rather it means, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, that Scripture is God-breathed, meaning that Paul, as he wrote, God took the very words that Paul wrote, full of his personality, Paul's own use of grammar, his thoughts, his mind, and God imparted to those life-giving spiritual qualities, that God literally breathed into Paul's words the authority of inspiration of Scripture. It means, according to 2 Peter 1.21, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means that God took the personality of Paul and Luke and John. He took the, the personalities of Matthew, Moses, and he infused into their writings the quality of being inspired by God. Certain letters then, and certain books were deemed to be inspired. And others were not throughout the history of the church. There's three criteria that are typically used. The first is the criteria of authority. Who wrote the letter? Does the, the person have some level of spiritual authority like Paul? Peter? John was an apostle of Christ? The second criteria was uniqueness. Did it exhibit inspired qualities? Does it communicate the kind of content that appears to be the very words of God? And third, is the letter or has the letter been accepted? by churches, accepted by churches, meaning that when a letter was read, churches would evaluate whether or not this was something that that spoke as an oracle from God or whether or not this was just somebody's opinion. And over time, those books and those letters that exhibited those qualities became gathered, became gathered into what we have today in our scriptures. And that's why that letter you'll see to Laodicea, um, we don't have, it's not part of the content of our scripture. At the same time, the letter was useful, and Paul wanted that letter to be read at the church at Colossae. So, the first thing he says to the church is, share the truth that I've entrusted to the church at Colossians, at Colossae with you, with, with, to the church at Laodicea, and take the letter from Laodicea and share that in the city of Colossae. 
Now, look at verse 17. There's a man in the text called Archippus. Verse 17 is a specific word to him. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Who's Archippus? Well, if you look over in Philemon 2, remember Colossians and Philemon went together. Uh, Philemon was a letter written from the heart of the Apostle Paul to a wealthy man named Philemon about a slave, Onesimus, that uh, Paul had met. Onesimus received Christ and was being sent back to Philemon. And the letter, the book Philemon, was sent to Philemon in order to help him understand what had happened in Onesimus' life, an appeal for him to forgive his slave. In Philemon 2, Paul addresses the family unit of Philemon, and he says this, To Philemon, our beloved worker, fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. So it's likely that Archippus was a son of Philemon. He's called a fellow soldier, and the church that's in your house... Taking that along with the reference in uh, Colossians 4.17 where, where Paul says, Say to Archippus, fulfill the ministry you've received from the Lord. That means that Archippus must have had some sort of significant role because Paul isn't just going to say, Hey, tell Archippus, fulfill the ministry he's been given unless he was an important guy. He wouldn't just single him out in that church unless he had some significant role or, or a significant role in the surrounding community. And so what we can kind of put together is that Archippus was probably the son of Philemon who had some sort of role either at the church at Colossae or more likely at the church of Laodicea. And what we see here is that Paul says to Archippus two things. That he is to see his ministry as from the Lord and he is to fulfill it. Verse 17 says, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So his ministry was first from the Lord and secondly he needed to fulfill it. From the Lord and fulfill it. Ministry is something we receive from the Lord and something then we need to fulfill. I've been thinking about that all weekend. And the reason is, is because on my heart is the closing of 2008, moving into 2009, and all of us have received um, a ministry here called College Park Church, and it's a gift from the Lord. You realize that whenever you're with a group of believers where you're taught the Word and spiritual life is happening, that is a gift, and you should never take it for granted. That's a good place for an amen. We'll try that again. You realize that when you, you find a church where spiritual life is happening and it's apparent that growth is taking place, you ought to never take that for granted. Amen. And you always ought to say amen to that. Always. As evidence of you're not taking for, that for granted. You see, we, we received a ministry from the Lord. As we're ending 2008, moving to 2009, I'm beginning to pray through, Lord, what do you want for us in 2009? And how are we going to fulfill some of the things that you seem to have laid upon our hearts? It's also a reminder um, to me that, that the Lord has placed a call upon my heart to, to lead this ministry. And there's a little bit of nostalgia going on because it was this particular Sunday a year ago that uh, my family was in worship here at College Park Church. We were seated about three rows from the back just trying to hide and be in the background. And hopefully nobody asked us any questions about why we were there. And we were here just to basically check you out and see what the church was all about and, and check out children's ministry and even check out the city of Indianapolis. Uh, on Friday night we had this great idea. This is after Thanksgiving, the Friday night. Hey, let's go down to downtown Indianapolis and just hang out for a little bit. So I'm pulling into a parking lot. There's like 30,000 people down there. And I'm driving in and I said to the parking lot attendant, is there something big going on down here? And she looked at me and she went, <laughs> I was like, 
Yeah, you know what? I don't know what's going on. Then I see this Christmas tree thing in the middle of downtown, right? So the beautiful thing was that over the course of three to four months, God put a specific call on my heart here. A call from the Lord. Specifically from the Lord. And now I have to evaluate in my heart. So Lord, what is it that you want me to do? How do I fulfill your calling how many of you were given um, a, a new area of ministry in 2008? Let me see your hands. 2008. New area of ministry. Good. I want you to know that when you receive a new area of ministry that God gives it to you, it's a calling from Him. And by the way, He gets the right to write the master plan for that. He gets to decide what it is that it means to fulfill your ministry. And so the, the burden, when God calls you to do something, is to figure out not what do you think, but what does God want you to do. To be on your face and to seek his heart and say, God, help me to know what it is that is the next thing for me to do. Because I have learned the hard way over my lifetime that God's plans are a lot better than my plans. In fact, one of the reasons that we're in 2008, moving into 2009, and the very last day of 08 and the first day of 09, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer event that's happening here. In 15-minute increments, you'll be asked to come and and read scripture and pray. And we're going to end 2008 and roll into 2009 with this focus of, Lord, we want to fulfill the plans that you have for the ministry. We want you to, to add your blessing to the word. We want you to help us to know what to do in the Brookside neighborhood. We want you to help us with all of the ministry partnerships. We want you to help us with the needs that we have in the ministry. A little commercial, there's a sign-up sheet out at the visitor desk with 15-minute increments, and I would just encourage you and beg you, if I could, to sign up for those blocks and 15 minutes at a time come and read Scripture and pray and seek God's heart along with us. For, Lord, help us to fulfill the ministry that you've given us. And by the way, one of the reasons it's important to know that your ministry is from the Lord is because when hard times come, your calling, that's the thing that keeps you in it. For you to look at your wife, look at your husband, look at your kids and say, didn't the Lord call us to this? If He called us to it, then we're not going to walk away from it casually or lightly. If the Lord called us to it until He releases us, we're not going. And Paul says to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. And then last, verse 18, a very personal section. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. When Paul was writing the rest of the book, he was doing it by means of a scribe, meaning Paul was dictating and a person was writing it down. And then Paul literally took the quill and began to write it with his own hand. And it probably was that Paul's hand was chained as he's writing. So you can catch the drama and the pain and the emotion of the moment. It's a stunning thing and an emotional thing that Paul says here. He says, not only I write this greeting with my own hand, but then he says this three words. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. Why would he say that? He he wanted them to remember that he was imprisoned. It almost seems as if Paul wants some assurance that his ministry to them was not a waste. that, That he wasn't out of sight and out of mind. Here's the humanity of this this beloved apostle who is pleading with his people that they not forget about him. And when I see that, I see the heart of the apostle Paul. He's a little picture of a man who's 
imprisoned and pleads with his people, don't forget about me, remember my chains. It's a good reminder that the heart of the apostle was connected to his people and there's something deeply personal about the relationship between the apostle Paul and these people at the city of Colossae. It's a good reminder that ministry essentially is personal. See, being a minister of the gospel is something that gets into your heart. When you bring the gospel to someone or try and help them understand the word, you get involved in their lives. You can't just bring your mind or your body. You also bring your heart. And that's why it's painful at times is because you go with a heart and sometimes your heart is broken. And you don't have a chance always to retool your heart. You still have to minister with a broken heart. And Paul says to this church, remember my chains. Don't forget about me. Don't don't forget about my imprisonment. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 calls the church there to remembrance of the way in which he dealt with them. He calls himself like a nursing mother taking care of his own her own children. And in 3 John 4, the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy to hear than my children are walking in truth. And what Paul does here is he pleads with them to not forget about him and in their prayers and in their love and in their allegiance that they wrap their arms around this man who poured their life into him and he into them. And even though Paul had never been there, had taken men like Epaphras and sent them there, and he longed for them to be able to walk in newness of life. And then the last statement, Paul not only says, don't forget me, but also, don't forget the grace of God. The book closes with a statement that we find in other books of the Bible, where he says, grace be with you. That little phrase, grace be with you, is is much more than just a closing greeting, or a, a way to end a book. Rather, Grace be with you is a summary of what Paul wanted them to do for the rest of their lives. In in the original language, there's no word be here. Rather, it reads this, grace with you. You have to supply the word be. You have to supply the verb. And be is not a bad translation. But sometimes you could think of it this way. You might think it says grace will be with you. That's not what he intends. It's not grace will be with you, but rather the idea that grace is with you. Or that the resident grace within the community of the, of the redeemed is present there and they need to embrace the grace that they've been given. So when Paul says grace be with you, he's talking about God's grace that has been already given to them that will sustain them over the long haul. It's the grace that God has given them through Christ and it's the grace upon which they will stand for the rest of their lives. It's the grace in which he says that God has done amazing and wonderful works in your midst. He talks about all the beauty of who Jesus is. And now he calls them to take that grace and to stand in it. Romans 5 says this about this grace. Therefore, being justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have access by faith into this grace. What is the grace? It's the grace of what Christ has done. And in that grace we stand. So what Paul is doing in Romans 5 and also at the end of Colossians is calling people to stand in the grace that they have been given. To remember all the things that God has done for them in and through the person of Jesus and then to stake their claim on that grace to live on that grace all day long. He calls them 
to realize that this grace that God has given them is that upon which they can stand and rest. So the question then for us becomes, what is the grace that God has given us through this series? What are the graces upon which we need to stand? Or what are the lessons that I don't want you to ever forget? So I sat back and thought this week about what are the, what are the, the things, the, the major moments throughout the series of Colossians, those kind of defining moments that define the series, and, and what are the moments that I don't want you to forget? And I want to plead with you to not forget these seven things. I plead with you, please don't forget these seven things. It's been too much time, too much energy, too many things that God has done in our midst for us just to wipe this slate clean and say, let's just start over as we go into the book of Job. In fact, the reason I chose Job was because I wanted to help us understand how knowing Jesus leads to a right understanding of when he calls you to suffer with Jesus. So what are the lessons? Number one, there's seven of them. What are the things God wants us to stand in? What are the lessons from the past? Here they are. Number one. Jesus is core. You don't make him the core. He is the core. Deal with it. (laughs) You know, that little phrase was never in any of my notes. It just came out of my mouth one day as we were having our, our time in the Word. But the reality is that's the sum total of the book. doesn't sound very theological, but it is, I think, real life. It is that Jesus is the core. He the reality of who He is. He's the preeminent one. He's the Lord. He's the creator of the universe. All things are from Him, to Him, and through Him. And therefore, you don't make Him core any more than you make me 6-5. Jesus is core, and our responsibility then is to simply deal with it. To realize that all of life orbits around Him. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For by Him all things were created. In heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. That word preeminent is a word we need to get back into our language. Preeminent meaning that he has the rightful first place. He's the owner. He's king. He's Lord. And everything about my life is derivative of him. Realizing that the main battle in life is not an issue of whether or not I know he's Lord. It's a matter of whether or not I live as though he's Lord. It's a matter of whether or not I acknowledge that Jesus has a right to control my life. In fact, one of the main things we'll talk about in our series in Job, it's this. Does God have a right to give you a hard life? Or does He owe you an easy life? Because the answer to that question is the difference between when suffering comes, whether your heart will be filled with love or rage. And whether or not you will choose to bless or whether or not you will choose to curse. And some people actually come to the gospel and they come to the scriptures with a yearning to somehow make their life better by receiving Christ. And to hear the gospel this way, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No. Well, receive Jesus and you can go to heaven. Well, that's a good deal. I'll receive Jesus. And all they've done is made Christ an idol of a different kind, an idol of their own heart. And they've made Christ circle and revolve around themselves. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you're a sinner, you've offended a holy and righteous God. 
Without Jesus, there's no atonement for your sins. But another one came, Jesus, who paid the perfect sacrifice for your sins. He was king and Lord and man. He died so that you could have a beautiful, forgiven heart. And when you receive Christ, you bend the knee and say, you are in control of my life. He is core. He's king. And I am not. The second thing, from chapter 1 and verse 21, it's not very good grammar, but it's very hopeful, a hopeful statement. There's nothing that Jesus cannot handle. There's nothing that Jesus cannot handle. Or in other words, we said it this way, Jesus can. Jesus can. We took that little phrase from Nike, just do it, and I shared with you that don't ever live that way spiritually. Maybe it was a good marketing strategy for Nike, but it's a terrible way to live spiritually. You cannot do it. In fact, the faster that you know you can't do it, the better you are. Everyone else around you knows you can't do it. You just need to wake up to the reality that you can't do it. You can't do it. Instead, embrace the fact, I can't do this, but Jesus can. For instance, I'm an awful sinner. I could never repay for my sins. Right. But Jesus can. I've made such a mess of my life, I can't fix what I've done. I can't make the past right. Right. But Jesus can. I've been so hurt, I I don't have the power to even think about loving them, let alone forgive them. I can't create love for them. I can eat turkey with them, but I can't love them. Right. But Jesus can. Like, oh, I wish I had that. Like Wednesday, that would have been helpful. It's too late now. I have a friend with really deep problems. I, I don't know what to say. I, I can't help them. I, I don't know what verses to show them. They seem their problems are so huge. I don't know what to do. Right. But Jesus can. Our son won't listen to us. His heart is so hard. He sat there all Thanksgiving and just spiritually cold as ice. We don't know what to do to get through to him. We can't make him see. Right. But Jesus can. Life is too hard, the pain too real. Can't imagine living another year like I lived in 2008. I don't know if I can do another year like this. Right. But Jesus can. You see, there's nothing that Jesus cannot handle. And we need to grab a hold of the faith reality of what it means to say, I can't do this, but you can. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do a little. Apart from me, you can do a lot. He said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Preach nothing to yourself, reliant, self-sufficient heart. You can do nothing without Christ, including make your heart clean. Number three. When we suffer, we make the word heard. I remember this Sunday from... Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Verse 25, 
to make the Word of God fully known. I remember that after a Sunday morning, there was a, a rush to our poor tech guys to get DVDs to be able to take to particular people, all of the congregation who weren't here, who were suffering and hurting, because that Sunday I declared this simple truth, that when you suffer for Christ, you proclaim the Word. But do not think that when you are suffering or hurting, that you have somehow been put in a penalty box. You have a gift, an opportunity of a lifetime to be able to take the suffering and make it a platform upon which the Word of God can be heard. God means for the body of Christ to experience some of His suffering so that when we offer the Christ of the cross to the world, they will in our suffering see the Christ of the cross in our life. People in the world will listen to those who suffer and still hold on to the gospel. And during the series on Colossians, we said goodbye to at least four suffering saints who made the word heard. Shonda Cuppy, Sophie Carmichael, Al Arshambo, Tom McElroy who the evidence of their life was a platform of the glorious truths of the gospel because they not only suffered, they suffered and made the word heard. Fourth, it is that man-made rules do not work. Colossians 2.23 says this, These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Newsflash, you can't make enough rules to stop sin. You can't. You can try, but it won't work. Because the moment you get a rule and it works, you'll take that rule and write a book about it and say that everybody needs to do this or you're not a Christian and you become a legalist and send people to hell. That's what happens. Legalism has a damning power. And if you never lived in an environment or a church or a home where that was the case, you ought to thank God that that was never your experience. But many of you, after this series, there are some of, about half the church didn't get it. Like, I never experienced that. That's great. But the other half were like, oh yeah, we totally get that. That's right. You go, you go, go, go. Down on legalists. Go, go, go. They, the, the liberating power of what it means to know that Christ is so much better than a list of rules. See, the enemy doesn't care if he can destroy you with godless sensuality or godless spirituality. That's the problem with legalism. It's godless spirituality. All he cares is it isn't full of God. All he cares is it's godless. So the frightening problem with godless spirituality, which is legalism, is that those who are guilty of it feel spiritual. They create rules in their own strength and their own power to establish themselves and to justify themselves or they want to keep the church pure so they create rules for the, the, the church in that regard. And the problem is, is that both create damning effects because Christ is removed from the trust factor. You see, a sensual man feels guilty and he should, but a spiritually proud man feels religious and that's the problem. Legalism is dangerous because it is so self-deceived. And I fear how many more people are going to be in a Christless eternity because of spiritual pride than are going to be there because of sensuality. 
Because spiritual pride makes you feel like you're better than everyone else. Fifth, it is that we live vicariously through Christ. Vicariously. That's a theological word. It means that you live through the lens or through the life of another. In theological terms, it means that when Jesus died, we died. That He died and His death became sufficient for us, so we live vicariously through Him. it's, It's why I got up at... 4.15 on uh, Friday morning to go out to the long line waiting outside Toys R Us with all the other crazy people who were out that morning. Anybody else go out that morning? Come on, admit it. Get your hands up. Let me see you. Wow, hardly anybody. I should have been shopping here. At least nobody got ran over here or things like that. Crazy things happen. And the reason is, is because we want to live vicariously through our kids on Christmas Day. The, the gift that I'm buying for my children, I, I'm trying to imagine it through their minds and their hearts. And part of the joy of Christmas Day is the fact that I get to watch their joy. So their joy magnifies mine. That's why Christmas is so much better with kids. Because they bring a joy to my heart as I live vicariously through them. And the problem when it comes to our spiritual lives is that while many of us understand the vicarious nature of Christ's atonement, meaning that when He died, we died, we put a wall there and we don't live vicariously all the time. In other words, you need to wake up every day and say this to your own heart. Live vicariously today, Mark. Put your name in. Live vicariously. I'm going to live through the work of Christ. It's what Paul said in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. That's how He lives. So I live through another person. It's that I live through the person and work of Jesus. That I live vicariously. It means that I have to understand my position in Jesus. And understanding that position creates practical living. That position precedes practice. Number six. This is probably my favorite. The idea of intentional atrophy. We mortify the flesh by intentional atrophy. If you weren't here this Sunday, essentially what it means is this. that The word mortification means to put to death. But for all of my life I've struggled. What does it mean to put sin to death? Because sin is still present with me. It's still there all the time. It's not like it's dead like a dead deer on the side of the road. It's not dead like that. It's dead some other way. How is it dead? And then I found in the study the word atrophy, which means something that while alive is as good as dead. And I was like, yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Intentional atrophy. That's what it means that I got two arms. I got a, I got a sin tendency and I got a spirit tendency. And the reality is this sinful tendency needs to be weakened that it needs to be it's there it's not going to go away until jesus comes and when he comes it's completely gone but right now there's these sinful desires these wicked longings these these sinful things that are there and the challenge of my heart is to say to my flesh i'm not using you we're going to let you become weak and girly man arms that's going to make you look like it's weak atrophied arms and i'm not going to use you and i'm going to stop lifting a little bit of weight And let that arm shrivel up. It won't ever go away, but it can become really, really weak. And so we mortify sin by intentional atrophy. 
And then finally, it means that we take Jesus and we bring him into our marriage, our family, and our work. If you understand the centrality of Jesus, if you get it that he's the core, then listen, then Jesus is going to show up in your marriage. And he's going to show up in a different way for a mom, a dad, kids. He's going to show up in a different way for a single than he is for a married person. He's going to show up differently for an employee versus an employer. But the reality is Jesus shows up in his centrality in all of those relationships. And that's the beautiful thing about Christ, is that as diverse as the body is, the centrality of Jesus is the thing that unites all those things together. So a wife, to express her allegiance to the centrality of Jesus gives her husband the gift of submission. And she doesn't do it because he's worthy, because both you and Jesus and your husband know he's not. You still give it to him because it's as unto the Lord. It's an expression of the allegiance that you have of Jesus. And it means that a husband who understands who Jesus is, and the more he knows about Christ, the more he desires to live with his wife in an understanding way and to love her as Christ has loved the church. It means the greater your heart expands for Christ, then there's a direct relationship between your love for Jesus and your willingness to love your wife in a Christ-like, selfless way. It means children are to obey their parents. And the way that they express obedience to their parents, or the way they express, rather, obedience to Christ, is by expressing obedience to their parents. So yes, mom and dad, you have a theological justification to make your kids clean their room. You can say to them, pick these clothes up because this is how you worship the Lordship of Christ. So preach that to them. Walk in and say, you kids pick this up in the name of Jesus, right? Tell them this is part of the way in which they serve and magnify the preeminence of Christ. And it also means that when you're an employee, that you serve your master, you serve your boss, regardless of what you think of him or her. As one who reports at the end of the day to Christ, you work heartily as to the Lord. You make widgets better than anybody else in this county. And you do it to the glory of Christ. And if you're an employer, it means that you know you're not the big man on campus. You're not the top of the ladder. Can you imagine what Jesus thinks about our big-hearted, wow, promotion, da-da-da-da. And he looks at us and thinks, that's a promotion? Look at me. Look at this. And when we get before Jesus, he's going to look at our little businesses that we made, our little promotions that we got, our puny little salaries that we have, and our teeny leansy little 401ks that are tanking anyways. And Jesus is going to look at those and say, you think that's something? Look at me. That's wealth. That's honor. That's power. That's position. In other words, every area of life is to be impacted by the reality and the power of the preeminence of Jesus. Every part of your life has been impacted by Christ being the core. And the battle is for us to take everything in life and submit it to the supreme lordship of Jesus. So these are lessons that I can't forget. I can't. Because this book is sacred ground for me. The pages of Colossians, they got, they got sweat on them. They're dirty from so many turnings back and forth and, 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 and trying to figure out what it means. This, this book has been too important and, and too significant. God met me here many, many times and I trust that it's been the same for you. The concept of Christ being the core is a powerful, life-changing idea. 
And so as we bid farewell to this glorious book with gratitude in our hearts for what God has done, I trust that there will be within your hearts a deep resolve to discover for the rest of your life what does it mean for Christ to be the preeminent one in my life. And you take every area and you transform even the most minute areas of your life and you transform them for the glory of Christ because at the end of the day, you don't make Him the core. He is the core. You just have to figure out how to deal with it. And that's what this book and that's what our lives are supposed to be all about. That the message of Colossians and the life of someone who knows Jesus are supposed to go hand in glove. And when that happens... Jesus looks at that and says, that's what I died for. Father, we ask you to cement and emblaze upon our hearts important lessons from this book. Things that we don't ever want to forget. Concepts that have been transforming and ideas that have had the opportunity to change our lives from the inside out. So, Lord, I pray that every time we come back to this book, that we would remember that you, oh Lord, are the core. Thank you, Christ. Thank you for the gift that this book has been to this body, to my own heart. Thank you for meeting with us. We don't want to take that for granted in any way. Help us to stand, Lord, on that grace. Help us to stand on it. As we're closing this morning, I I wonder this morning if you're here today and you know you've sat through 26 messages and you still haven't bent the knee to Christ. Oh, you know today would be a great day for you just to say, "Enough, I give up." Okay, I get it, Lord Jesus. I give you my heart and receive your gift of forgiveness of my soul. There's nothing new to learn, friend. Nothing new that you're ever going to hear, frankly, about who Jesus is than this. It's it. Game, set, match. He's Lord, you're not. You're a sinner. He was righteous. You need to turn and receive Him. And for the rest of us, maybe you're like me, that there's some really sacred lessons that the Lord taught you, and you just never want to forget those. And could you just take a few seconds, just thank the Lord for what he's taught you. So Lord, we thank you for the beauty of what you've been able to accomplish in our lives. We thank you that you are are the preeminent one over all the universe. We worship you and pledge ourselves afresh and anew making much of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen.